Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, best of season four episode. I'm Steve Ewing, the editor of the show. On a typical episode, hosts David Spira and PG Law explore immersive gaming from all angles with guests who really know their stuff. For this show, we thought it would be worthwhile to look back at season four and find the most interesting, entertaining, and impactful moments. Season four was distinctive because David and PG decided to highlight international voices. Each episode featured someone from a different country. We talked to incredibly creative folks in Israel, Australia, South Africa, the Netherlands, and even war-torn Ukraine. Today, we're going to begin in Greece. Dimitri Varalos was our guest for episode two. He is one of the creators of The Paradox Project, known for innovative escape rooms in Athens, like The Mansion, The Bookstore, and The Music Academy. These are massive experiences that can last more than three hours. We asked Dimitri about his approach to escape game innovation and what kind of special considerations he built into such lengthy games. It is not a spoiler anymore to say that the first two of our games, The Mansion and The Bookstore, the game begins when you arrive at the building. We wanted the game to feel as realistic as possible. And this is something that came out of our own experiences. We have been to some amazing games that we didn't like the part right before it. And I think Mm -hmm. this is something that you have discussed in your podcast before. Sometimes (laughs) you meet someone and they are there to tell you the rules or to tell you a very basic story. And instead of immersing you into the experience, it takes you completely off. So this was one of our ideas, how to skip that part completely. When you arrive in our games, the game starts immediately. This is something that we would like to do as players. There are a lot of games in Athens now that start immediately when you arrive at the place. The second thing is, like you said, the first game is a house and the second is a bookstore. So it's only natural that there is a bathroom inside those spaces. So we thought it would be more realistic to have the bathroom inside the game for anyone to use at any time they want. So our games are not typical escape rooms. And especially the mansion, when we made it back then, we tried to say to the teams that this is not an escape room. First of all, it's a house, it's not a room. And second of all, it's not an escape game because you're not to escape, your goal is not to escape, because you're never locked in. So you don't have to escape from somewhere. You are there to do something and solve the mystery and figure something out. So anyone that wants to go to the bathroom, they are free to go to the bathroom whenever they want at all times. If someone wants to smoke, they can go out in the balcony and smoke. We don't restrict them of doing this. But you said you don't talk to the players before they get to the game. So is this like information sent to them in an email or something? Yes. The game rules are sent on the email when a team is making a booking, and they also find the same game rules and a letter when they arrive outside the door. So the team has to read the game rules and the letter before entering the space. And I wish we couldn't have that, but as you know, a lot of teams don't read the emails, especially for our games that are a little bit different, it's good to know some of the things. Yeah, it's been interesting to see reactions. So still to this day, 2022, the game has been running for seven years now. We have teams entering the space. There's no one there. Something is happening. They don't know how to react. We have teams leave the game and they go out and they call us and they say, we arrived (laughs) and there's no one there. (laughs) We'll go in. (laughs) We just hung up the phone. 
and let them figure it out. Yeah, we want to make themes uncomfortable in an interesting new way. Make them figure it out themselves in a way. So I hope I answered your question about the bathroom. And about the break time, I know that it breaks the immersion a little bit. But we figured out from the beginning that three hours can be a long time for some of the teams. So at some specific points in all three of our games in Athens, we ask them if they would like a break. It's their decision. It's not mandatory. Some teams choose to do a break, most of the teams actually, and there are a few teams who don't want to have a break. So when it happens, the time stops, the music of the game, the soundtrack stops, and they have a few minutes to relax, maybe go to the bathroom, maybe drink something, because we also have water coolers and refreshments inside the game. I really appreciated the intermission in both games. It felt really good, especially in these longer games and in the warmer climate to just take a break, have a little bit to drink, go to the bathroom and not feel all this pressure. Because sometimes like in an escape room, even when the company tells you, oh, yeah, you know, you're free to go and use the bathroom whenever you want. The door is open. Go do it. You still feel like, well, if I go, I'm, I'm missing a lot you're of stuff. You're missing out. It's like going to the bathroom in the middle of a movie. Yeah, exactly. So it felt really good to just have that little break, have a couple minutes to like just hang out with my teammates, look at each other and nod and be like, oh, yeah, this is a good time. I'm enjoying this and then get back into it. So it sounds like the bathrooms and the drinks are kind of scattered throughout the game, because in my head, when you said intermission, I imagined you get to a certain point of the game. Maybe it's a room. And in this room, there is the bathroom. There's a little snack bar, drink bar. And now it's designated intermission time. And you know, it's all within that room. But is it not just like a room that is the intermission room? Is that how it works? Yeah, I don't want to give away too much about the layout. But think about it as a real house. So there is a water cooler and the refreshments are on the bar. The bar is accessible at all times. Anyone at any point, they can go to the bar and drink something. It's the same for most of our games. Okay, we have a little, a few surprises every now and then, but we try to adjust to the story. So if it doesn't make sense, maybe some things are a little bit different. Teams are really encouraged to read our rules very well because some things change from game to game and it's not by accident that some things are different. Speaking of accidents, I have a question and I might regret asking this, but has anything especially memorable ever happened involving the game's bathrooms? We specifically write in the rules of the mansion that the bathroom is accessible at all times and is not part of the game. You can go whenever you want, but there's no clues there for you to find. But some of them, they don't believe it. So one of the things that it might sound a little bit weird to say, but I have to say since you asked for something weird. In the bathroom, there are two toilets. So when you flush the toilet, sometimes we have a specific aromatic thing that goes through. So one guy realized that one of the bathroom, the cleaning in the toilet was blue and in the other toilet, it was pink. So he was convinced that this was a clue for the game. And <laughs> at some points that they needed some colors later on, he was having a great epiphany moment like, oh, blue and pink. <laughs> I saw them in the toilet. We must use the blue and the pink. <laughs> in episode six, we welcomed Dino Paolo, winner of Survivor South Africa, Return of the Outcasts. 
While Dino, David, and PG talked quite a bit about their love for this particular version of Survivor, they also delved into lessons Dino learned as an early escape room owner. In 2015, Dino bought into a company called Hint Hunt and opened a branch in Johannesburg, but he soon learned that the company had serious financial problems. As a side note before we begin, in this clip, Dino mentions millions of rand. Today, 1 million South African rand is about 55,000 US dollars. Here's David. Over the course of your early years in the business, your company was struggling financially, but it wasn't due to the business underperforming. You were selling tickets. Rather, it was financial malfeasance on the part of one of your now ex-partners. How did you discover what was going on? What was going on? So coming in as a youngster, 25-year-old who's the outsider who's bought into this business and the three original owners are mates who have been mates for over 20 years, you know, in their 40s, had a bit of that imposter syndrome, which as you can see is a common theme with me. So I never rocked the boat whenever I saw some red flags, but there was always turnover, but there was never any leftover. And it, it did raise concerns to the point where Johannesburg branch eventually had to close down. Out of nowhere, we get told by this partner that we're owing millions in rands to landlords. We were just owing money left, right and center. And we were like, oh my word, how did we get into the situation? And it almost felt like it came out of nowhere. Although the red flags were there, the sheer extent of it was quite surprising. And for a long time leading up to there, I actually started selling off my assets that I'd accumulated in my previous businesses to try and keep these businesses afloat, thinking that you know we're in the same boat. We're striving for a common goal. Meanwhile, there was an incredible amount of theft and mismanagement of funds from his side that I eventually uncovered by having a bit of a discussion with one of the silent shareholders, who's my now current active partner. He's a hugely successful businessman in his own right. He was a part of a chemical manufacturing plant, got his MBA. They sold out for a huge amount of money. And he was never actively involved in this business, but eventually I went to him and said, hey, listen, have you noticed X, Y, and Z has happened? And he was like, yes, I have noticed. And I was trying to test the waters because this is one of his mates and I didn't want to be putting myself in a more precarious position. And once we kind of scratched that surface, I got full permission to do like a full-on audit, bring in my own people from him with the shareholder backing. And we uncovered insane, insane levels of theft and mismanagement. But fortunately, we were able to make the right decisions, turn it around and put ourselves on a really, really good footing going forward. I'm thrilled to hear it. Before we move on from the mismanagement and the theft, do you have any advice for business owners to prevent this kind of financial fraud? Like what kinds of steps can people take to make sure that this sort of thing never happens in the first place? So what I've learned, and I've learned this through my current business partner, Gary, he's been phenomenal. And we'll, we'll chat a bit more about him and his involvement going forward. But it doesn't matter the size of the business, you have to run it like it's a business. And you have to have the right financial controls in place. In our case, we've got accountants, we've got bookkeepers, we've got our own internal financial systems. You know, we go the full distance. Or if you just have, at the very least, a way of tracking every single cent that comes into the business and every single cent that goes out, we use a spreadsheet that we call Money Matters to do that. We are constantly keeping an eye on absolutely every single cent of the business. We know what's coming in, we know what's going out, and that can be done even on a very basic level. And had we been doing that at an earlier stage, we would have been able to pick up certain things far sooner. 
So I would just say, regardless of the size of the business, it is your business. You need to be doing your due diligence. You need to be looking after the finances. You need to keep a close eye on things, no matter how big or small, because everything adds up. Wow. I'm so sorry to hear you had to go through that. You were like playing real life survivor. It was a crazy time and it was a very tough time financially. I mean, I sold three of my investment properties and my car to stay afloat personally right through this time. Oh it felt like huge steps backwards, you know, but at the same time, I was just grateful that I was in a position to be able to do that. So on a personal level, it was tough, but it was great lessons. I learned so much. And at the very least, I can look back and go like, well, I am where I am now and I'm very happy where we are now. So I'm grateful for how everything's happened, no matter how tough it was at the time. But yeah, it was like real life survivor. Oh my word. Even when we were uncovering the theft and the fraud and having to do this investigation without alerting him to it at all, and then having to suspend him from the company and do all of this, oh man, and manage accounts that he had access to and almost like flip a switch where he's one day he's in the business and one day he's not without him even knowing, like the ultimate blind side. It was like Survivor. It was insane. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, you had to blindside him. Wow. (laughs) And it's sad because he and I were close. We became friends because we chatted every day and and I care a lot for him and his family. And it was incredibly tough for him too. So there was a level of empathy that this was dealt with. Somebody listening can detach themselves from this human being and be like, oh, well, that uh, stole from you. So just cut it loose. But no, there's a personal relationship there that made it really, really difficult. And it really was like Survivor because you do build up these personal relationships and you do have to like make hard decisions. It's uncanny, the similarities, right? The Netherlands is known for incredible immersive gaming experiences, and the Amsterdam Catacombs game from Logic Locks is no exception. We had its creator, Alexander Gearholtz on for episode four to talk about this demonic escape room built under a 150-year-old church. Eventually, the conversation turned to a discussion about gamification, where it makes sense, and perhaps where its limits should be. I see that you teach gamification. And personally, I always try to gamify everything in my life because, well, games are fun and I want to make boring tasks as fun as possible. Can you explain what the concept of gamification is? I think it's one of those things that people think they know what it means, but maybe the reality is a little bit different. Yeah, it's a a pretty controversial concept by now. And it's also interesting. Gamification in its beginnings was basically how can we use elements that are very motivating for people in games and apply them in other non-game related environments. And the thing here is why this became a very uh, controversial topic is because there's a deep way of doing it and there's a very shallow way of doing it. (laughs) And in the same way that there's very shallow games with very simple hooks that are just made to make you uh, like addicted to them maybe or put you in a mindset of like mindlessly killing your time, you can use those mechanics also and apply that in other settings. So you can imagine like someone taking elements from like a a dungeon crawler and trying to uh, implement them in someone else's uh, job environment. You can debate if there's an ethical use of the tool. In the same way, you can debate if those games using those tools are actually ethical. There's this book here somewhere about addiction by design, which talks all about the tools that are being used in slot machines and how these games are being optimized. You could imagine using many of those tools and use them in other fields, but that's the dark side of gamification. If you see, like I, I was teaching gamification, I think for two years, I was first teaching game design, then gamification. And the next year I was teaching signs of well-being, you know, there's a progression here, you know, there's so many overlapping elements, but go more and more deeper into this is like the question, like, what does it help to live a meaningful life? 
And why are there certain things that we consider in games that give us like this passion and this meaning and this enthusiasm? And how can we frame our world to either recognize them in other parts or to frame it in other parts like this to get people curious and excited about them? I have a series of apps on my phone. One is like working out. So if you like mark that you worked out and you did these things, I don't know, you get some gold for your character and you can use that gold to run an RPG. Or I have apps where I put down tasks and as I do the tasks, I mark them completed and then a little town will grow. So you mentioned before, you said that you think that there's a shallow way of doing it and as a deeper way of doing it. So is that considered like a shallow way of gamifying? My personal view on those things is like, if it actually helps you to connect with the actual activity, instead of just distracting you from the activity, I would consider it meaningful. So we can say, okay, every time you go running, you build up this town. And then your main focus becomes to build this town. Well, I think probably it would be better to create something that helps you to connect with the reason why you're running and what you get out of running and make you mindful about the running and not make the running a tool to fulfill another virtual purpose. Sometimes I really feel like we're having a bit of a maybe spiritual crisis in the sense that we're creating all these virtual worlds to escape from like the very real problems that we have. We shouldn't try to flee into virtual worlds. This is antithetical to everything I believe in. <laughs> All I want to do is flee into a fantasy world. Maybe if instead of every time I went running, there was like an image of me and I progressively got like skinnier and skinnier or something like yeah. maybe that would inspire me to connect more with running. I mean, I had a bit of a moment where I was questioning a lot of the work that I was doing a few weeks ago when I was doing a training to become a nature guide. And we were in the wild in the south of Spain, tracking animals and interpreting nature. And it was fascinating. It was amazing. This was an experience that didn't need to be gamified for me because it felt really immersive. But the shocking moment was for me when I was in the woods collecting uh, things. And I remembered playing a video game in which I was doing the same thing. <laughs> and I thought like, oh, wow. So actually, like, the, I'm doing the real thing now. But I, my memory, my association is the virtual activity that I had more often and I have much more memories and associations with. And this moment was for me so shocking because then I started to realize at the same time, we are in an environment that is heavily threatened and with a lot of ecological problems. And I don't really connect with it as much because I go home and engage with my virtual environment, which is increasingly getting better. My video games are getting better. All these games that I'm playing and all these tools and gadgets that I have are continuously getting better. And making me feel like there's a progression. But if I go actually in the real world, out there in the wild, things are continuously going worse. And this was for me a moment where I was like, okay, there's something really deeply problematic here. And made me seeing me a bit away from the concept of escapism. I get that a little bit. I remember when I went to Angkor Wat in Cambodia, and I could not get over this overwhelming feeling of, oh my God, this is just like the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland. And that's, you know, <laughs> that, that association. And I'm like, but that ride is based on this actual location that I'm in. Yes. I'd never been there. And I'd been on Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland many times. So it, there was a weird dissonance with that went into a bit of a, an existential tailspin, just like you did probably with thinking mm -hmm. like, what's wrong with me that this is the real thing. But all I can think about is that ride at Disneyland. <laughs> I had a very similar experience in Venice, Italy, where I remember walking through the city and thinking, this feels like a Counter-Strike map. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I remember this map as well. It's a little Italy, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. It's not as easy as shallow or deep gamification, but I think, yeah. Also, that's what I like about escapums is that to me, it opens up your imagination and it opens up your creativity when you play it. I remember like I was playing with one of my girlfriends back then. It sounds like I have a lot of girlfriends, so now she's an ex-girlfriend. But like playing with her escape rooms, introducing her to it. And when she came back and she were in this house and she was like, it's incredible. Now constantly behind every door, I imagine there could be like something secret, something fantastic hidden. But we were in the real world. So it's not that we were like escaping in some sort of fantasy, but just what happened is she was more aware and excited about being in this physical space and being in the real world, be more curious about your surrounding because yeah, mysteries could be hidden everywhere. And as a matter of fact, mysteries are hidden everywhere in our world. This is actually what excites me about escape rooms. Guy Bosco has designed more than 200 escape rooms in Israel, which is about 25% of all rooms that have ever existed there. David and PG's conversation with him from episode seven is all about his wild journey from computer programmer to sci-fi writer to prolific designer, including his love letter game to enthusiasts, The Sting. The conversation ended with David asking about a unique twist on the standard escape room that Guy is a big fan of. In Israel, there is a genre of culinary escape rooms. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because that's a unique thing as far as I'm aware. I played one of them that was brought into New York, Sugar Rush, but I'm curious to hear more about this. Did you like Sugar Rush? Was it fun? <laughs> <laughs> I saw a lot of potential in it, and I didn't feel like it fully lived up to its potential. Very diplomatic. Yeah, it's not my design, so you can say whatever you want. You can say whatever you want, even if it is my design. I always say about my designs that if you liked something, it's probably because I designed it. And if you don't like something, it's probably because of the execution, which is... Uh, <laughs> yeah. I say it uh, jokingly, but it's fun to, to look at it that way. Speaking of culinary escape rooms, Yoav Vanyas is uh, one of the most creative people I've known in this industry. He had some of the more creative escape rooms in Israel, even before he invented the culinary escape rooms. He had one escape room called The Terrible Roommate where you had to go into an apartment to find drug money left by your friend and you meet his roommate, which is an actor who is a stoner. And that game was so different from anything else that was in Israel at that time. It was the very first comedy room in Israel, which was a genre you rarely saw in escape rooms. And it was so hilarious. It was amazing. It was very, very, very funny. And Yoav designed some of the funniest and most creative games in Israel. And then he had this idea for people to come to his home, to his kitchen home, and solve puzzles to get ingredients to make a pizza in his kitchen home and save some money on renting a place to do that. And he started doing that. It was a huge hit. The concept was amazing. And the neighbors started complaining, so he closed down the one at his home, he rented the space, and he started the very first culinary escape room. It succeeded. He designed another and another. He got a partner that works with him, Idan Sharon, and they designed together those escape rooms. They have, I think, seven or eight culinary escape rooms in Israel and many escape room boxes. And this is very interesting to note because when I played the very first, which was the cupcakes one, I realized something which I'm not sure he intended, 
But part of the thing, it was not only fun and whimsical with great puzzles and you get the ingredients and you make the cupcakes. It was also educational because when I came into the room, I said, there was no way that in 60 minutes, I'm going to learn how to make cupcakes. I can't bake for the life of me. And within 60 minutes, I made cupcakes. I made them from scratch and I knew how to make cupcakes. So above all, that was amazing for me. David, when you said culinary escape room, you did not mean an escape room that was just themed around food. You meant that they are actually making food in the escape room. You guys are cooking and baking in an escape room. Okay. I just wanted to clarify. Wow. Yes. You literally make it from scratch. You make pizza, you make cupcakes, you make, there's a burger one, there's a cocktails one, there's all kinds. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of playing any rooms or games where you end up with a souvenir or something that you've made during the experience. So, you know, solve our shirts. I like that you still have a t-shirt at the end of this game. I love the fact that you can play this game and then now you can eat a pizza. Yeah. And this basis could be like for many other things. Like if you can gather ingredients and make a pizza, you can theoretically gather ingredients to get a haircut in an escape room. You can (laughs) gather ingredients to get a tattoo. Yeah, so that concept is amazing and the culinary escape rooms are really recommended even though I didn't design any of them. I I love those. On the Reality Escape Pod, we love having creators on who dream big. In episode five, we had Jonathan Driscoll and Sasha St. Dennis, owners of Escapearium in Canada. With more than 30 escape rooms in operation, they definitely fit the bill of ambitious creators. At the top of the episode, PG asked about that drive to truly make a room unique and what it takes logistically to make that happen. When David described your games as massively ambitious, I feel like that is a wild understatement, actually, because just those three games that he mentioned, Voodoo Queen, Rain Corp, and Wardrobe for Sale, they are enormous. These would be flagship games at any other single location. And you guys have all three of these games at one location. I mean, it is astounding. To me, that seems like one of your defining characteristics is just having these games that have a massive scale and scope. Well, yes, but we had a lot of influence from other sources. One of the major influences was when we went to St. Louis and This was before we rented this current location and we saw somebody that was selling a big boat and we saw the boat and we're like, we need to put that in a game. I'm going to step in there. I said, I want that boat. (laughs) And John just said, (laughs) we're not buying that boat. And I said, I want that boat. (laughs) And he's like, that's insane. And then I convinced him that we wanted the boat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a little bit more how it worked, I guess. Well, I definitely wanted the boat. But yeah, she was definitely pushing for it. But we had nowhere to put it anyway. You needed some sort of big warehouse to have that sort of thing. And you need to have a big garage door. All that was like, yes, I want the boat too, but it's impossible. Yeah, we didn't have any of that. (laughs) Yeah. So what happened is that then we finally found a place and we're like, well, it's a very ambitious place, but we think we could pull it off. So we thought that the market could handle a place as big as we wanted to rent, which also had a big garage door. Then we started looking at actually buying that boat that we looked at. So we brought it in and then we went to play New Orleans, 13th Gate. 
I don't want to spoil anything, but that kind of changed our view on what our game was going to be. So our <laughs> game was supposed to be just in a boat. And then we played that game and then we said, no, it's got to be much bigger than that. 13th Gate had a really big influence on what we were aiming at for that location. There's a whole bunch of things that you both have touched upon that I want to cover. Let's start with the boat. How does one buy a giant ship? It's not really a boat. It's a ship. I want to take a minute to establish the scale of this thing, which we have done once already because Jonathan was kind enough to come on for one of our Spoilers Club episodes where we covered Lost Island of the Voodoo Queen. I think it's 80 feet long or so, if I'm not mistaken. So how does one get a ship like this that doesn't actually float, like you couldn't sail it? How do you get that there? You drive it. Tractor trailer. Yeah, all the way from Florida. So what happened is that somebody else actually bought that boat and we were sad. But that place that bought the boat was a haunt and they went out of business. So they had a boat for sale. <laughs> we drove the boat all the way from Florida all the way to Montreal. I don't know how many miles that is, but that's a lot of miles. <laughs> what does a border guard say to you <laughs> when you are driving up with a giant boat? I'd love to be able to answer that question, but I was not in the car that was pulling the boat. But yeah, that must have been quite the uh, chat. He probably told all of his friends to come see what was going on there. Because I doubt that a pirate boat crosses the border pretty often. Did it come up in one entire piece or in separate pieces? Mostly in one. I mean, the main part was definitely one piece. And then after that, you had the jib and the main sail that was put into the boat. And after that, the boat was pulled and that's it. I have pictures of it. and. It did not seem very solid. I don't think there were a lot of potholes on the way there. I also think we would have lost a few pieces. Well, we're going to get those pictures for the show notes. It was very awesome as it was pulling up to Escape Barium. We were very excited. <laughs> Actually, I don't even think I was there when we were pulled up. I think you were alone watching it because I don't remember seeing the boat. Because the boat did hit our building. Yep, there's a big dent. There was like aluminum siding. And the boat ran right into it and ripped it all off. <laughs> Ramming speed. Yeah, I don't know how that happened, but it's very tight turn to be able to bring in a boat of that size into the garage. I guess the guy missed his mark and hit the side of the building. But the boat was intact. That's all I cared about. <laughs> Without a doubt, episode nine was the most emotionally powerful episode when our guest was Tasha Tarkhanova from Ukraine. Tasha is the creator of Project Avatar, an incredible virtual experience that plays like a live action video game, where you are directing a live actor through an enormous abandoned warehouse. When Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, Tasha and her family were faced with the difficult dilemma of whether to flee their hometown and then what would become of their business. In this segment of the show, PG delves deeper into the question of how it's possible to run an escape room in a war zone. So I have a question, actually, about the business still. And I know that you and your family have relocated to Poland now. And I see on the website that you guys are still running games. And in fact, you've even designed new games, which is very impressive considering the circumstances. Are you still running it from the original location? 
Yeah, yeah, we are doing an original location, so we continue to host our games and we do everything for safety of our staff. Because about the project avatar, we didn't worry about that because it's totally like safety premises. It's like a basement and you didn't worry about the hosting of the game. And about the game that we was uh, starting the new game, we didn't do the new scenario. We like adapt our in-person room to online because when it was started, when the war was starting, it's like uh, we usually have in our location, we have three rooms and we usually have like 150, 200 games per month. And after the starting of the war, it's 30 games per month. So it's like Wow, really not enough to work in that. And that's why we was decided to adapt it to online. And it was like hard for us, really was difficult task because we have a high level with our project and we have a usual escape room. And we was trying to combine it to do not lose the main idea of the whole game, that it's like the main soul of the avatar. And it's not like the same. We can tell that it's like the same style game, but it's uh, also have immersive elements. So it's really important for us that we can continue on that. And uh, because like uh, we uh, have to close our production, as I was told, and for us, it's like, the main business that uh, earning money for us. So it's uh, important for our family. It's important for our friends, for our staff, because we involve everyone to do that story, to have opportunity, because you can understand how it's, I don't know, I think you can't understand, you can imagine how it's happening in the country, how it's hard with the prices, with everything, how it's hard to get money, to find work, to hire staff. It's, it's really hard. It's really hard now to combine everything in, in one. So why we are continue working online and we're trying to find opportunity to start a new scenario because we was want to start a new one. It was like a continuance of a first mission, the next part of the first mission. It was a great story. It was a great place that we was found. We was looking for that like a half of year. We was looking just for premises. We were working hard to preparing it and after the starting of war we need to like to stop it because that premises uh, was huge bomb shelter oh. yeah <laughs> and uh, we was you know really happy that it's like not we lost our money for that because we was already do a lot of work in this shelter electricity the water and so on because it was abandoned uh, it was a really huge one uh, i don't know if there will uh, have opportunity uh, our city will have opportunity to uh, fix it all because it was like a shelter from the ussr's time and it was shelter a, fa a yeah. fallout shelter yeah yeah oh okay so you had found a new location for your third game which was an abandoned bomb shelter yep oh i see the huge one and then you had to move it to clear out the bomb shelter forever. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. It really was like uh, we were thinking and sitting like that. Maybe we can play here. And they said, <laughs> no. <laughs> Imagine it. <laughs> what happens if an air raid goes off in the middle of a game? 
So about the Project Avatar games in Stalker, there is a premise. It's uh, already like a bomb shelter. So it's like in the Z- <laughs> yeah, we love the places <laughs> like that. We was not something. <laughs> you have an aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> our paranoia. It's like really like a bomb shelter, and the people who work in the same building, the, uh, if it's air alarm, they going down to us. So uh, in uh, games, we like warn our uh, players that sometimes you can see the other people here it's our friends <laughs> so don't <laughs> worry and in the part when we're playing the um, mystery hotel it's like also the buildings that have very fat walls it's two meters walls in that building so you guys just play through the air alarms that is some dedication yep. <laughs> Yeah, I will tell you that uh, after some time, in the first time when you see uh, hear the air alarm and you go into bomb shelter very fast, after a few months, it's becoming like a part of your life. And you say, oh, shit, again? <laughs> really? Now? <laughs> Sometimes it can be when you are in the shower. And my friend have phobia. She told me that uh, she said, okay, I understand everything, but just imagine it. I will be in shower. I will start washing my head. I wouldn't hear the air alarm. And some missile will get in my house. I will die naked with the shampoo <laughs> in my hair. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I, I mean, not that it's the same thing at all, but having grown up in Los Angeles my whole life, we have a lot of earthquakes here. It's like when it's anything small, if my things are not falling off the desk, I barely even react when we have an earthquake. You do get a little bit immune to these things after a while. It's really bizarre, but and it's, it's like we do everything with a humor now. Our friends, even they are now uh, near Donbass, they are also do everything with the humor. Because they say without that, you will lose the main, uh, the important thing that you will lose your like fire inside you that making you live. Yeah. Yeah. It helps keep the spirits high. In episode 11, we welcomed Lucas Rauscher owner of the escape room company Crime Runners in Vienna, Austria. Last year, their room, Going Underground, was ranked number 45 on the Terpica's list of the world's top escape rooms. Throughout the episode, Lucas speaks candidly about the lessons his team learned in creating a top 50 escape room, including the pitfalls along the way. David took the opportunity to follow up with Lucas about a time he spoke on that very subject. Back at Eric, the UK escape room conference in 2019, you gave one of my favorite talks that I've heard at any conference, not just an escape room conference, but just any conference. And you spoke about the struggles you had with your business and all of the different crises that you ran into, which were numerous. I loved this talk because it was so honest. And we are always hearing about the things that go well when people make these great games. We rarely hear people talk about and open up about the things that went wrong. I know that we do not have time, and I don't know that you even care to relive all of these things. <laughs> no, no problem. But I'm curious, like, 
what's the high level? What are like a few of the bigger challenges that you were dealing with back then and even since? Like, what are the crises that have defined the last few years of Crime Runners and your work? It's very funny because the talk back then was my first huge company crisis. And now I have already five behind me <laughs> and we are still like in the last one also because the pandemic is still affecting us but i'm really see it feeling like for us the last meters but you never know you know you never know a pandemic war and recession so that's the one thing but back then it was a feeling for me that i'm feeling as an entrepreneur and as a creator and as a team player for example, there was project management mistakes even from me and other stuff. And we had a lot of fighting and a, even a founder clash. So basically we had like this, the talk was about all the crisis we had, this one major crisis and how we realized that we cannot sugarcoat it anymore and we have to act. And we overcame this and this is always my mindset. A crisis is already a chance to finish the crisis and being stronger and better than before as a company and as a human being and as a team player. And we managed, I think, in every crisis we had that. But it's now it's a little bit enough. So I do want to have a vacation. So you've had enough personal growth yeah. through crisis yeah, but, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think that's never enough personal growth, of course. Yeah. Maybe you could work on personal growth and not have it tied to a crisis. A vacation would be awesome. But <laughs> no, no, I'm already in a very good state for that. To answer the question from David, back then, before I did the talk, I had these friends in the industry and they were like, for me, benchmarky. Also they were like a benchmark for me and they were like always just seeing how great they are and how fine you're doing, how perfect you're doing. And this fucked me up because we are struggling so much. I'm doing everything wrong. And then another friend of mine who already did build an amazing game, which one of my favorite game of all time. During the crisis, I asked them, man, how did you build that game? Because I don't know what I'm doing wrong and how did you survive that? And he was like telling me, brother, if it wouldn't been for an investor, I would have given up long time ago. And this was the one single sentence was such a relief because it showed me that everyone is struggling. Everyone has problems. If you create something new, you will struggle. You have these problems and you have to overcome this somehow, but you're not doing anything wrong because it's normal to do something wrong if you risk something. I think people could gain much more from people who already did something if they realize that we all are trying our best, but we will have struggles to succeed. I hate this clean picture of startup companies who are saying what rock stars they are because nobody is. And a lot of people got lucky, but even the best entrepreneurs I know of, they are telling me 99% of the time how much shit they had to go through. And one person is about their success stories. And I wanted to be more open about that. And it was like a therapy for me, this talk, because I think people realize that it's normal to struggle and everyone should know that. That was the reason we did the talk. I loved this talk so much because I do speak to so many owners and so many skilled creators and I hear the stories of what they struggled with and what went wrong. And 
what's weighing on them and the problems that they have with their business partners, the problems that they have with the local regulatory authorities. And also, you know, we have our own struggles just running Room Escape Artist and running this podcast and running Recon. And we put forward these hopefully polished products, but it ain't easy. And especially in 2021, Recon 2021, me and Lisa made major mistakes in the way we managed the team through that entire conference. And it was devastating. And you live in this cage of your own creation. It's really hard. And ultimately, you have to push through it and get out a product that looks polished and looks like nothing went wrong along the way. But hearing your talk and hearing you as someone who, you know, even back then, even in 2019, very well regarded in the community, hearing you get on stage and open up about that was very moving to me. Thank you so much. I was so nervous about the talk. I didn't knew back then if it's a great idea or maybe if I just doing a mistake because you always could get mistakes used against you. But I was thinking, fuck it, I'm just trying this. And I get such amazing feedback from you and other guys. And for me, it was such an such a good feeling that it was the right decision to do that. And that it's good to talk openly about stuff. And I really can encourage everyone. I think a lot of more people would risk something if they would understand that there are not superheroes or rock stars in any industry, that it is a tough road if you want to do something new or want to create something and that you do not have like this, oh my God, I can never do stuff like this. Just try it out if you want to risk something. And yeah, even the people I knew back then who were telling how great they are and how perfect they are, I knew from friends and everyone, everyone is going through the same. Everyone is going through the same shit. Mistakes are getting made and stuff happens. Nobody could see that there will be a pandemic. It's normal. It's completely normal to struggle. The things you are struggling with most are often the best things you will ever do. One of my favorite episodes from season four was with guest David Spigner, the CEO of the Swedish company Odeborg. Odeborg is hard to describe, but think of it as a series of short in-person challenges where you and your team must figure out how to work together and complete the rooms. It's a mixture of physical and intellectual games that you must attempt multiple times to figure out how to succeed. David is a great storyteller. I encourage everyone to listen to episode 10 to hear how David and his family stumbled upon the first Bodeborg in Sweden and immediately got hooked on it. When David bought out Bodeborg, he set out to make it more polished and more real. In this clip, David describes his vision for the future of the company and his view of immersive gaming as a concept. Sounds like a big difference was going from like a flat 2D painted set to a full dimensional movie mm-hmm. quality set with that you could touch and feel. Absolutely. And then our strategic direction is a massive change. There was none at the time. I am a strategist by background, by training. That's what I do. And I had to have one. I had to have one that made sense. And that came pretty quick to me. It was because I'm a huge Star Trek guy and I'm a huge Star Wars guy. And I don't know, are either of you Star Trek people? Yes. You are. So you know what a holodeck is, right? Yes. Great. So that's my end game. Okay. Got it. 
So you want people to basically go to this place and they can have, within reason, any adventure they want. As real as we can make them. So reality gaming is what we call the space. A lot of people, and I've heard you guys on your shows, use the word immersive. We don't. We think it's reality gaming as juxtaposed to virtual. And we think those two diverge. And so my in strategic game, and I don't think I'll achieve this in my lifetime because you have to master E equal MC squared to do it. And I don't think we're quite there yet, but our whole strategic direction is ever more real. And that's what we're going to do with our quests. Ever more real. That's exactly where I'm taking it. Our technology development is headed that way. It's going to become more intensely headed that way. Everything we do is designed for ever more real. So on that subject, you have a few patents for control devices as well as game operation methods. What role do patents and intellectual property play in your business? That's a good question. So obviously the questing process itself is something that is special, very unique, and it is unique and proprietary to us. We like to keep it that way for as long as we can. Of course, understanding that there'll be spinoffs and people trying to do things similar. We've seen that for years. And so we're not so concerned about that. We actually hope some of them will be very successful. We think that might actually help us. So we're not actually frightened by that. I think that's a healthy and probably correct view. Just gives more credibility to the reality gaming business sector. Exactly. We're not afraid of our position in the sector. Think about this. I don't know that I squarely mentioned that second thing that made me say, yes, let's go get it. But one of it was the longevity of Bodeborg. By the time I had run into it, it had already been surviving for 10 years. While being sort of managed. <sighs> While being very poorly managed and poorly built and poorly everything. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> and so this is critically important to the decision we made. I honestly sat back one day and said, there is no way this should be alive. This should be dead. Mm -hmm. There is a company called Nagone in Spain. I don't know if you know Nagone. If you're I have not there. heard of Nagone. So Nagone was a brother-sister team who made a ton of money. They had developed some kind of a software. I don't really know what it did. They sold it to Yahoo for half a billion dollars. And they developed this thing that tried to copy questing, so to speak, but it had 40 challenges in a row and they were using RFID. They had really made this mammoth Python of a thing that was so long. And it had all kinds of high tech and bells and whistles and it failed miserably, went bankrupt. We've seen that happen over and over again. But Bodeborg, even in its worst state, continues. And that was impressive. What do you think is the secret sauce? Well, <laughs> and I don't want to get too much into that, but let's just say that if we did have a firm mission statement, like a large corporation would, it would be something along the lines of, we keep humans human. So this sounds a lot like the soundbite that I have been giving reporters who have called to get information on escape rooms for really the last eight years. I always tell them the same kind of thesis statement, which is that in a world gone digital, doing things in real life is bizarrely revolutionary. It sounds like that's the space you're looking to play in. Yeah. You know, this is where I diverge strategically. I am not a strategic believer that we are going to one day live in a ready player one world. 
I just don't think that's going to happen. I agree with you. We're not designed that way. It's not our plight in life as humans. I honestly believe there are billions and billions of dollars going into this notion that virtual reality is going to be the next big gaming platform. And it's been happening for almost 50 years, all that money going into that space, and not much has come of it. And I understand why Zuckerberg spent the $2.3 billion for the technology that went into developing Oculus Rift and now Oculus Quest, I guess they call it. And by the way, I think that technology is amazing. I think it's just incredible when you put that headset on. But there's no way that I believe that's going to turn into a meaningful, growing gaming platform that's going to generate billions. I just don't believe it. I think that it's going to be reality-based. And I think that it's not going to be puzzle-based. I think it's going to be task-based. I think it's going to be human-based. I think it's going to be based on us. Our desire to want to be and do things like James Bond and Indiana Jones or Laura Croft or even the waiting to exhale people, whatever. It's That's why we watch movies. That's why we read books. It's why we watch TV shows. We subliminally want to know, want to do those things. And we haven't had the courage to do it. Our little boy, our little girls, our little kids, and even the young adults in us have been muted. And I intend to bring them very much back to life. Thank you for joining me for this best of season four episode. We are hard at work on season five, which is coming in April, 2023. I've had a peek at the guest list and I can tell you there are some huge fan favorites coming up as well as some fascinating people you may not have heard of. Consider turning on notifications in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single show. We'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this season possible. For just $5 a month, you can become a Patreon supporter and get access to all the podcast bonus shows. If you're not listening to these bonus shows, you're really only getting half the content. The bonus shows have even more stories, information, and opinions from David, PG, and their guests. Go to patreon.com slash roomescapeartist and sign up before the next season begins. The Reality Escape Pod is hosted by David Spira and PG Law. The show is produced by Lisa Spira and edited by me, Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media. This show is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. Thanks for joining us.